Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. I cannot believe it, you guys. This is episode 75 of Quarantine Creatives. It blows my mind to think about that. I know I've said it before, but bear with me. If you're new here, you haven't heard this, so I'll say it again. This show started back in May of 2020 as a way to just sort of document what was happening with the pandemic. And really for me, coming up as a TV producer and director for 15 years, looking at an industry that I loved, an industry that I was a part of, that was really shut down completely last spring and slowly starting to trickle back and reinventing itself as it was happening and just people coming up with great new models of production. So I wanted to talk about all that. I wanted to talk about how people were making TV in these crazy times. I wanted to talk about the people that weren't making TV and how they were getting by and talk about adaptation. And since then, the show has grown and, you know, I've expanded the pool of people I talk to, musicians and filmmakers and Broadway stars, authors, people in the media. And it's just been a fascinating journey. So whether this is your first episode or your 75th with me, thank you for being a part of this. I am excited and humbled and grateful that I am here talking to you. And, you know, I just got to say, too, I am at a place looking at this milestone where I'm starting to look for what's next and trying to figure out what that next move is going to be. And I have just grown such a love for podcasting and talking to you guys, you know, every week now and talking to really fascinating people. But I'll be honest, I'm not a business person. I didn't get into this with a business mindset at all. I got into this just as a fun project to document what's been happening. And now I'm at a place where I'm like, I would love to keep doing this and figure out a way to make it a full-time thing, or at least, you know, a good part of (laughs) a part-time thing or, you know, whatever. Right now, the money that does come in is helping cover expenses like web hosting and equipment and, you know, just all that kind of stuff. But I would love to figure out how to take it to the next level. I'm not that person. I don't know if any of you out there listening are those people, but if you have advice for me, feel free to reach out. If you are somebody that's been in podcasting and has figured out how to do it, I would love to talk to you about that. If you own a business and, you know, want to sponsor this or you own a podcast company and, you know, want to aggregate our show or just whatever, I don't know what I'm asking for. I don't even know who's listening right now, but if you have any ideas for me, feel free to reach out. You know, I do the podcast now every Thursday and uh, there's 75 of them to go back and listen to, which is awesome. Go check them out. Today's show is really fun. Jim McKelvey is my guest. He is one of the co-founders of Square. I am sure you've seen a Square card reader out there before. They've been around now for about a decade, and uh, they attach to the bottom of an iPhone or the side of an iPad, and they allow a phone to become a payment terminal. But as Jim outlines in his book, The Innovation Stack, it was not an easy journey to get to that point and to figure out how to make this product. And it wasn't just simply the the issue of figuring out, okay, how do we take the numbers on a mag stripe on a credit card and turn it into data that an iPhone can read? But there were many, many problems that were all interrelated. Some were regulatory, some were legal, that all had to come into place to make Square what it is now. 
And, you know, they not only make those little readers that go onto the bottom of an iPhone, but they have whole POS solutions that you'll see a lot of times in cafes and bakeries and places like that. They have the Cash App, which allows you to send money and share money with friends and things like that. And uh, we'll talk about that later on. And they just had a really interesting purchase, which we talk a little bit about as well. They bought the streaming service Tidal, which is a music platform founded by Jay-Z that is really all about trying to get artists better representation than they're getting from some of the other big music companies out there. So a lot of fascinating stuff just on the technology side. But Jim also has a fascinating side as a maker. He has been a glass blower for like <laughs> concurrently with being a tech guy for all these years and, uh, you know, still goes to a glass studio. So we talk a lot about glass blowing in this interview. And he also helped fund a makerspace in St. Louis and uh, has a lot of connections to the maker community, which for me, you know, working at this old house for a long time, I, uh, I'm really sympathetic to that and interested in that. So yeah, it's a fun story. And the Innovation Stack is an awesome book. It's not only the story of what happened with Square, which Jim co-founded with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. And uh, there's some stories even in the book. Jim was one of the first people to ever hire Jack. <laughs> I mean, like they're friends from way back in the day and co-workers. Uh, Jack was working for Jim as a teenager in St. Louis. So whole cool story there on the Innovation Stack. But in the book, Jim also goes in and looks at other companies that have had to solve these same problems that he did at Square, whether it be Ikea, Southwest Airlines, Bank of Italy, which became Bank of America. He kind of profiles the people that were behind these decisions and just trying to figure out what it is that made them keep going as they were up against these crazy challenges. So it's not a business book in that it's not like a you know step-by-step guide. But it is a great inspiration book just in terms of, you know, getting you to want to go out there and create something in the world and keep pushing. So it's a fascinating conversation. It was a great book, The Innovation Stack. It's been out for about a year now. It's on bookstore shelves. Go check it out. Here it is, my conversation with Jim McKelvey. Yeah, I want to ask you just first of all, as we're sort of at the one year mark now of, of living with COVID, what this last year has been like for you. So it is the one year anniversary of me launching the innovation stack uh-huh. right into the face of COVID. Yeah. And it was really interesting because I got to see the world shut down in real time. And I, I guess what I would say is it's been pretty good for me Yeah. because I happen to live in a part of society where you can work remotely and you know I've got a family so I'm not alone I do work with people who are not so fortunate and in my you know maker life where I live in the glass studio and stuff yeah. uh, man we've been hurting so I, I I would say not bad but you know certainly I wouldn't I wouldn't want to repeat it yeah well, I'm curious, you know, I, I want to get into the glass blowing stuff later, but you brought it up and it just it's relevant to sort of the COVID stuff, like just in thinking about, you know, so much of glass blowing is using your mouth. Like it's not it's not a process where you can easily be masked, right? Like how does that work just having other people in a studio and things? Well, so so glass is a team activity. Yeah. I, I never work by myself. Uh-huh. And so at first we just stopped. And then after a while we were like, Well, we're just gonna all be out of business if we stop. So we sort of collectively quarantined and we just said okay i trust you you trust me and don't you screw it up for us (laughs) right and um you know we've we've kept it but it's tough 
you know, I work with a guy who's in his sixties. He's fantastic, but he's in his sixties. Yeah. And then we have a, another guy who helps us who's in his thirties and we don't trust him. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it's, it's a whole different, like just that, that pod mentality, I guess of, you know, what have you been doing? Where did you go? And are you comfortable with that? Like they're, they're strange conversations that I don't think any of us a year ago imagined having to have with coworkers. No. And look, it's been a huge accelerant. Like all the stuff that I was sort of expecting to happen over the next five years happened in five months, mm. you know, video meetings and online retail and delivery and, you know, all this stuff that, oh yeah, we can see the trends coming, but now they're all part of our lives. So that's really kind of interesting, but I just miss people. Yeah. And not, not the people I know. I miss the people I don't know mm. because my life was always, you know, sort of hanging out with weird people and crazy places and, you know, places that surprised me. And I don't do that anymore. Yeah. Like if I'm meeting you, it's been scheduled. Yeah. Just that, that bumping into people, you know, in the coffee shop. Wait, what are you talking about? Oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> like that's, that's. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. where you crane your neck you know, 170 degrees around and start having a conversation with somebody in the new booth behind you. Yeah. That sort of stuff. Yeah. Don't do it anymore. Right. Uh, well, you mentioned too the book launching, you know, a year ago at this time, like where were you at, I guess, in the process in terms of promoting and stuff? Like, had you, had you had book events? Or were those just kind of rapidly canceled? No. Or? So, so it's, it's ironic because there's a, there's a chapter in the book on timing, <laughs> but I literally picked the worst day in a century to launch a new title. <laughs> March 10th of 2020 was the absolute worst day. It was chosen, you know, by my, you know, all, all the whole publishing team, all these experts right. uh, said, well, this is the perfect day. And uh, whoops, you know, <laughs> but the topic of the book has been fantastic. Uh, it turns out that, you know, what I talk about a lot in the book is this idea of not being able to copy. And when you are forced to invent what happens, because we spend so much of our lives, you know, doing stuff that we already know is likely to work if we, you know, just copy what's been done before. Right. And so sort of the main theme that I explore in the book is, well, what, what happens when you can't copy? Like, what does it force you to do? And we were all sort of collectively thrown into this world where a lot of the normal stuff didn't work anymore. So we all had to be kind of innovative, but unfortunately, you know, bad time to launch a book. Yeah, right. Well, that, you know, you talk about sort of innovation, obviously, in the book, but, you know, entrepreneurship and, and the definition of an entrepreneur is sort of front and center. And you argue that it's something that's it, it's lost its definition just because it's been so overused. Everybody refers to themselves as an entrepreneur now. You know, I, I'm curious sort of how you would define it. I know you talk about it in the book, but, you know, for the people listening, like what's your definition of an entrepreneur? So I needed a precise definition because I needed a definition that would differentiate some somebody who was copying a known formula from somebody who was trying to invent something new. Yeah. And, you know, I would argue that if you open a, you know, health clinic, that's a copied formula. You find other health clinics that, that work or you're opening a dental practice or a brewery or something like that, like it's been done before. It's fundamentally different behavior from what I wanted to study, which was when there is no model to copy, what can you do? So I needed a word for that. And it turns out the word entrepreneur used to mean that. So when I really got deep into my historical archives, I found that the reason we have such a long and difficult to spell word in the lexicon is because originally it was used to differentiate business people who were, you know, likely to make money and, you know, sort of follow this trajectory that could be calculated from these weirdos who were doing stuff that nobody understood. Yeah. And so what I want to use the word entrepreneur is sort of like 
sort of like an explorer. Okay, so think of an adventurer, somebody who's a who's an explorer. You know, Shackelford, or you know, somebody who's going to explore the wilderness. Yeah. Okay, they probably grew up in a city. They probably went to school. They're probably going to spend like a year of their life, if that, maybe a month of their life, maybe a week of their life, actually exploring uncharted. And they're and then you know they're going to explore their mountain and map it, and then they're going to go back and live in a town. Entrepreneurship is this sort of transient state that some people occupy for a brief period of time when it's their last resort. And I want to treat it that way. And if we treat it that way, then we can have a conversation about how things are different when you don't have a map of the territory. Mm. And that's what I wanted to do in the book. Yeah. Last resort it feels like desperation and not the kind of, you know, that rugged individualism, that, you know, heroic thing that, that we think of when, when, you know, when I hear the word entrepreneur, I think of a trailblazer in, in the very best way. <laughs> and to me, you're, you're, you're almost defining it now as, as a negative. Well, so are you going to cut your way through the forest if there's already a paved road? <laughs> of course not. Like, yeah. I mean, that, so if you are trying to do something, and there is already a good formula that will do what you're trying to do. Why wouldn't you use it? Right. I mean, I'm not walking into my doctor and saying, hey, why don't you experiment on me? You know, <laughs> I'm going to the doctor and I'm saying, how many times have you done this procedure? Right. Oh, you know, only 200. I'm going to get another guy in here. I don't want people for the sake of, you know, bravado to think that entrepreneurship is this great thing. I want them to kind of think of it as a last resort, but that's something that can be done. Because what happens, I've found, is that most people, they're so locked into copying everything they do in their life that as soon as they reach that edge of what they can copy, they stop. Mm -hmm. And, and the, 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 book, the book is dedicated to somebody. She's brilliant. She's got a master's degree from one of the most prestigious educational institutions in the world. Two, actually, she's got two master's degrees, um, phenomenal credentials, hardworking, brilliant, smart, everything positive, except I've seen her time and again encounter problems where she doesn't feel qualified. And she says, well, I can't do it. I'm not qualified. And my, you know, sort of 300 page answer to her is, look, yeah, you're not qualified in this particular case, but that's because nobody on the planet has done this yet. Right. So you can't be qualified. And my message to her and to basically everybody is, look, we don't have to live our entire lives stopping at the edge of what has been done. It will be uncomfortable. The tools will work differently. You'll feel weird. But it is absolutely possible to explore an unexplored area. It's just totally different than what you've been taught to do. But it's not impossible. And by the way, the first time anything is done in human history, it's done by somebody who's not qualified. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh... If, if it's never been done before, there's no roadmap. And I love that in the book, just the idea of, you know, people following a map versus having to draw your own map. Or, you know, you, you don't go into the wilderness with a map because nobody's explored it before. You're the first one there. Yeah. And, and what I wanted to do, look, we got a lot of problems in the world that I think we're going to need entrepreneurs to solve. And I don't want to be limited to the tiny group of people who feel bold and adventurous. I want people like me who are pretty timid, but also stubborn to be able to say, Hey, look, uh, I don't feel comfortable, but I can do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, or, Hey, I don't know how to do this, but somebody needs to. And I guess I'll be the first one. Yeah. 
Well, as we were talking about, this book was all written and obviously came out, you know, before any of this pandemic stuff. I'm curious, you know, as we talked about adaptation and things like, do you feel like there has been more of an entrepreneurial spirit during the last year as people have just had to chart a completely new course and, you know, figure out whether it's for their business or their family or, you know, whatever, just how are we going to move forward? What what are we going to do here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Are there any examples that kind of jump out as like, oh, that I like what these people are doing during this time? Um, collective child care. Mm. We see families in our neighborhood, you know, the, the daycare shut down. Yeah. And these people are like, look, uh, I, I know I'm still going to work on Zoom meetings, but like I can't have my kids. So the families pooled together and said, well, if you're safe and we're safe, then our kids are going to play together. You know, like it's just little stuff like that. I've seen a lot of ad- adaptation in the retail world. So my glass studio, which basically shut down, you know, finally got an online gallery up. Uh, so we went to Square and, you know, downloaded some new software and put up a Square store. And yeah. so we started selling. I mean, we weren't selling everything we were selling before, but we've brought back about half our sales through online, oh, wow. which I think will be, yeah, it's amazing. And then with my square hat on, I can tell you that I've seen, you know, sort of millions of small merchants adapt to, well, takeout as opposed to dine-in and uh, online sales as opposed to in-person sales and, you know, delivery and, you know, other ways of communicating. So yeah, there's been a ton of growth that's been forced on the world by the fact that, you know, you could walk into your door and not find any toilet paper. And then what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I wonder too, like talking about Square for a minute, like in my mind, and maybe this is an incorrect categorization, but I think of it primarily as something that is used by, you know, by artisans at craft fairs or farmers markets or, you know, really small businesses like that. And I imagine, I mean, you talked about it with your own glass studio that those are, are markets that are suffering right now. I wonder if you have you know, any, any data or even just anecdotal evidence of sort of what the effect has been on these really small businesses of the pandemic? Well, at first it was really bad. So for the first couple of months, it was horrible. But then we've seen about 60 to 70% rebound. We've actually seen a lot of pivoting and it turns out that small businesses are very, very nimble. And if you think about it, well, that makes sense because, you know, the, there's no executive committee that has to approve it. Right. It's like, oh, crap, we can't sell what we used to sell. What are we going to do? And and that sort of moment when your livelihood is threatened is a very entrepreneurial moment. And as a matter of fact, as I sort of detail in the book, there are a lot of examples of multi, multi-billion dollar companies that were formed by those oh, crap moments. So, I mean, a classic one was, uh, you know, Ikea. Yeah. You know, Comprod basically got kicked out of Sweden. You know, he was competing with the local Swedish furniture manufacturers and they all ganged up on him and said, uh, well, we're not going to sell you. We're going to boycott you. They did all this sort of nasty stuff to him. He basically kicked him out of his own country. And he's like, oh, wow. Uh, and he goes over to Poland and sets up factories. And oh, surprise, surprise, the Polish factories are not like the Swedish factories, but they have certain different advantages. And so he adapts his supply chain to that and just crushes the world. You know, these moments of duress are ones where if you are willing to step off the path, and maybe it's because the path just disappeared in front of you, but if you're willing to step off the path and then become an explorer and an entrepreneur, that's where I think great promise lies. And I've seen that again and again this year. 
Yeah. Well, you know, one concept you talk about in the book too is finding the end of the market, you know, figuring out people that are, that are not served. And, you know, you talk about that relative to your experience with Square, but also Southwest Airlines and, you know, other companies like that, Ikea. Is the end of the market something that you can search for as a business person, or is it something that you just need to kind of stumble across and figure out, oh, I need to try to serve these people now? Uh, no, no, you can actually search for it. It's fairly easy to see. And for those of you who haven't read the book, it's it's a fairly simple idea, and that is pick any market, and that market ends somewhere. Yeah. So an uh, easy example that we all kind of understand is cars, right? So what's a new car cost? Like the cheapest new car these days is about 15 grand. Okay, you can't really get a new car for less than that. And so imagine what the world would be like if new cars would be $2,000 or a new car could be had for a grant. Like what does that change in, in terms of you know, the way the world works or take anything like right now I'm obsessed with diapers um, and diapers are basically 25 cents a piece. Uh, they're a little more if you're poor because you can't buy them in bulk and they're a little more under certain circumstances. But, you know, round numbers, 25 cents a piece. Like what if we could make a diaper that cost a nickel? What does that do to poverty? Because like a third of the families in the United States have trouble affording diapers and it starts a cycle of poverty, right? As you know, young couples or in, in some cases, you just young women are, uh, you know, forced into this situation where they can either work or take care of their kid, but they can't put the kid in daycare because they don't have the money to afford disposable diapers. I mean, you know, so you, you look at any market and at the bottom of the market is this open frontier. The problem with addressing the bottom of the market is you can't use any tools from the market. And this is what we discovered at Square because, you know, we were trying to serve, you know, small merchants and people who were basically outside the credit card system. And we discovered that the banking world had built all these wonderful tools that were only applicable if you were processing more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. Right. And, and if you didn't, then all the stuff that already had been built just didn't work for you. So it was this very funny realization that what we thought was going to be simple turned out to be this market where we had to invent 14 different things in order to get it to work. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's sort of the core of the book is this idea of the innovation stack. And that's these 14 steps that you allude to with Square. But, you know, it's going to be different for every company. But essentially, let's take that diaper example for a minute. Like if you say, I want to make a five cent diaper you can't just go do that overnight. You've got to figure out, okay, maybe the materials are different. And if that's the case, how am I sourcing them? And then how do I set up a factory? These sort of questions, as soon as you answer one question, another question comes and answering yep. those in sequence and sort of the interplay between all of those issues is what makes the core DNA of your company. Is, is that a fair way to summarize it? Uh, that is not only a fair way, that is actually a very eloquent way of summarizing it. I think you <laughs> described it better than I did. I spent a chapter and a half on that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you get it, right? And, and it makes sense. If you think about this area of, of discovery, you're going to solve one problem, but your solution may cause two other problems. Yeah. And, and you're going to keep solving these problems until you eventually run out of energy to keep solving them and you quit, or you find a solution that works you know, in totality. And that's the innovation stack. And, and the reason I called the book the innovation stack was because it was this thing that tied together all these companies that I thought had nothing to do with each other. Right. So like a bank from a hundred years ago and a furniture store and frozen foods, which I didn't write up in the book, but like I found like 25 examples throughout history of these companies. And they all had this weird thing, which was this 
interlocking mess of things that they were doing differently. And I was like, oh, well, that's a stack of innovations. And then when I realized that there was this sort of mathematical beauty to this thing, I, I realized, well, wait a second. It's, it's not an accident that these companies dominate their markets. Like one of the best stories in the book is the story of APG Giannini and the Bank of America, which is banking today. Like the biggest bank in the world, for those of you who don't know, was created by a kid who dropped out of school at age 15, became a produce vendor, started a bank when he was in his 30s, just because he was pissed off. Like he was just angry and said, up yours, I'm going to start my own bank. And, he, and that bank, what he started as a bank is now what we all think of as a bank. Like the bank that you go to with a lobby and tellers and the ability to get loans and all that stuff, that wasn't available mm-hmm. before AP and GDD came, came on the scene. And so it's, it's just this really positive message, but it's also really powerful because I think if more people knew what the process looked like, then people would be maybe a little bit less hesitant to undertake it. Well, it's interesting, too, because like I think of of your innovation, you know, I I didn't know the whole backstory of it. And as I'm reading it in the book, it was fascinating because like I I think of Square primarily, I guess, as a hardware solution of just, you know, in my limited experience with it. it. It's something that plugs into your iPhone and you scan a credit card with it. And, you know, it's beautiful and it's brilliant. But I didn't know sort of the behind the scenes of just that so many of the things that you wanted to do were were illegal and, and against these, you know, credit card <laughs> companies, uh, policies and things. And like, I, I was just amazed sort of in reading it and, and looking back that you were able to make these changes, that you were able to go into, you know, MasterCard and Visa and say, this is really cool. We need you guys to support us. Like, what was that journey like? And just, are you as amazed <laughs> sitting here today as I am in reading your story of just like, whoa, that really worked. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, I mean, Heath, I'll tell you, we didn't know either. Yeah. You know, neither Jack or I knew anything about the world of payments. So we were completely naive, which it turns out is a pattern. Like all of these companies that I studied were founded by people who had no credentials at all in yeah. their industries, which I guess, you know, it doesn't matter if it's never been done before because nobody's going to have credentials. But again, it's sort of liberating to think that people who were as ignorant as we were could be as successful. But yeah, we were very surprised. But that's sort of how it happens. What happens is people fixate on some problem. There's something they want to do. And they say, well, I think we should be able to do this. You know, like why shouldn't a farmer who's a good person be able to get a loan at a bank? And when Giannini first started his bank, farmers couldn't get loans. Just forget it. And so he's like, well, why not? Like this guy's going to have some crops. Those crops are going to be worth something. Why can't you loan it? And it turns out that the whole system that had been built before he came up with Bank of America, Bank of Italy, was just not conducive to taking care of these people. And so he said, well, I'm going to do it. And then all of a sudden he realizes that, well, there's a law against that or there's a regulation or that, well, wait a second, farmers are weird because you know, you could have a localized weather problem and like all the farmers could have a bad year and then the bank collapses. But then he was like, well, if I just have a bunch of locations, then one place has good weather and the other place has bad weather and it all kind of evens out, you know? So there's solutions to these problems. But interestingly, those solutions tend to be built by people who don't know the industry because the people who know the industry go, oh, well, that's impossible. You can't do that. And when we were starting Square, I mean, there were dozens of experts who told us what we were doing couldn't be done. 
Do you think getting meetings with with these credit card companies and stuff, like how much did just Jack's reputation of, you know, oh, he's the Twitter guy, like having him on your side, did that help or were people drawn to the idea? Was it a combination? Like just, you know, I wonder if I if I were pissed off about something and, and wanted to go meet with American Express, could I get that meeting? I don't I don't know. So, I mean, Jack's really famous now. But he wasn't back in 2009. Uh-huh. He was the guy who got kicked out of Twitter, yep. and they were writing him out of the history. So Biz and Ev were claiming all the credit for, honestly, a lot of stuff that Jack had done. But they they basically kicked him out of the company and then started to rewrite history. And if you don't believe me, read you know read the Time Magazine article from 09 when you know they were listing the founders, and it's just crazy. Yeah. So uh, Jack did had have some local celebrity that helped us a little bit. But we basically just scratched the doors. And what actually got us in to MasterCard was a guy named Ryan Gilbert, who you never heard of. But Ryan uh, happened to have ho- have sold a company uh, previously, and he was sort of interested in what we were doing. And he had a previous relationship with MasterCard. But mm-hmm. it still took us like nine or ten months. Yeah to get that meaning. It like it wasn't like, Oh, call. it's Jack <laughs> yeah. Dorsey on the phone. Right. You know, it's like, who are you and why are you here? Yeah. And so, you know, we didn't go through the, uh, the red carpet on the way in. Yeah. Well, I love too, that it was, it was almost this game of sort of, you know, you get one company on board and then you use that to sell the next company. You know, with American Express, it was this conversation of, I lost a sale because I don't take Amex and your guys, your fees are too high you've got to get on board with this. And somehow they agreed with you and said, okay, yeah, we're on board. And then you took that to MasterCard next, I think, right? And said, okay, well, we've, we've got Amex. What do you guys say? And then, you know, once you have MasterCard, you can get Visa. But like, it's just sort of interesting, that kind of peer pressure effect on these sort of things. Well, yeah. I mean, people are herd animals and that's not a negative thing. That's just sort of how our brains are wired. Like we like groups. Yeah, We're a social animal. That's why we like dogs. Dogs like to sleep with us and that's good for us, you know? So, I mean, it's a really good thing if you're a human to be amongst other humans. And if you're running an institution, it's, it, it's good to be with other similar institutions. And, you know, we generally want to be part of the herd. And so when you're building the herd, you have to, you know, sort of put the first cow in position and then get the next one and then get the next one. So yeah, we circled up, uh, as we could the the companies, but it was do or die. I mean, ultimately, if any one of them had rejected us, I think Square would have failed. Yeah. So fortunately, we were able to get all four major credit cards in support, and then and and then the ment- momentum started taking over. Yeah. One of the things I loved in the book too is you talk about the importance of customer experience. And that that is more important than trying to maximize profits. And, you know, you talk about, you know, when when there are founders of a business uh, like Herb Kelleher at Southwest that drive that culture. And then once they retire or move on, often a new leader will come in and, you know, change that culture or see an opportunity that, you know, how can we milk more from our customers? And I've certainly twice in my life have been working at a public company that's gone private, you know, sold to private equity. And the culture has just completely shifted and it it trickles down right through the employees. And, you know, I I guess it's just it seems common sense, but it's not the way most businesses operate. Most businesses are just looking at the bottom line and not thinking about user experience. Like, why do you put such a focus on that? Well, so it's bottom line over time. 
And I would argue that a company that maintains a very, very customer-friendly and employee-friendly set of behaviors is going to do better over time. Now, the problem is uh, short-term rewards. So if you comp an executive for next year's performance, that executive is going to jack up the rates so that this year's performance looks great. And then, wow, what a genius you are for having squandered our long-term customer goodwill for 20% more uh, profit this year. You know, congratulations. Here's your, uh, here's your stock options. But unfortunately, if you build incentives like that, or you hire executives who are so short-sighted that that's all they can see, then you end up with that behavior. And I go through the math of this in the book because I was, it, was, it really pissed me off because people would always, you know, look at what we were doing at Square. It's like, well, why don't you charge more? They're like, why don't you, you know, or they would argue with us about, and this, this, these were sort of internal arguments. Like we didn't have these publicly, but the people inside were like, you know, we could, we could get another 30 basis points here. And our attitude is, yeah, we could, but at some point that would come and bite us in the ass because our customers will eventually figure it out. Right. And, you know, the great example that I go through in the book is Southwest Airlines, which, you know, for the entire tenure of Herb Kelleher, never had a significant competitor arise. And you could argue that, you know, sort of JetBlue came in, but JetBlue was this weird case because they had landing rights in New York and they had this sort of weird situation. But all of the other airlines that came in to face Southwest during that time died. And these were funded by major competitors, you know, United and and Braniff. Like these were big companies that just couldn't attack Southwest. And then Southwest gives up low pricing. Their profits look great for, I mean, I think it probably took a decade for that, uh, for that game to play out. But now they're in a position where they're no longer the low price carrier. Um, they still have very good cost advantages, but they're, they're not anywhere like they used to be. And six new airlines have risen to challenge them. Well, how you like that now? Yeah. <laughs> Although, I mean, they're all kind of, you know, because I'm a big JetBlue loyalist. They're, they're a huge carrier here in Boston. So, you know, I, I flew them a bunch and, and I noticed a lot of the same trends that you talked about in the book of, you know, with Southwest where, you know, training customers to look at their website first before you go and check other fares and, you know, just sort of counting that, okay, even if I'm going to spend $20 more on this fare or $50 more, I I like the loyalty to this airline. I like what I'm getting for it. I feel like I'm getting a good value. And I feel like just across the board, you know, baggage fees and change fees and, you know, reduced food and things, just like all of it, the, the experience has just gotten so terrible you know, whether it's Southwest or JetBlue or, you know, even the big carriers now, and in some ways, you know, United and Delta seem to be catching up and, and sort of catching on to some of those trends and trying to trying to right that ship. I'm not sure, but that's, from my experience anyways, that's what I'm noticing. I think you're right. And and look, you know, we could have large arguments about how short-term people are in the corporate world, but a lot of them have been given incentives to be short-term. Right. But I just wanted to explain that if you built an innovation stack and had one of these companies and were reasonably diligent about the way you maintained your relationships with customers and employees, that you could maintain your advantage for a century or more. Yeah. Like I really don't believe there's any reason for these companies to ever lose their advantage if they stay true to their form. And um, you know, I go through all the math in the book to sort of support this, but the bottom line is you have a choice. And if you're an innovation stack company, you are going to make a ton of money. There's just no way to not make a ton of money. The question is, do you make so much 
that you then open up the business to a bunch of competitors or do you make still a ton of money, but in a way that puts your customers first and allows you to maintain that advantage with basically zero competition forever. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you some questions about Square as well. Just there, there's some things that interest me. And, you know, one is, you know, I notice it in a, a lot of kind of smaller restaurants, coffee shops and cafes and, you know, things like that, bakeries. One thing that I notice with a Square merchant that I don't notice elsewhere is the effect on tipping. And that, you know, like when I go to a Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or something, they swipe my card at the register and the transaction's done. And, you know, sometimes if you're paying cash, you might leave, you know, the change from the the remainder of the dollar in the cup or something. But like, I, I don't generally go out of my way to tip at a at a place like that. But at, with with a square reader, people flip over, you know, that that iPad looking device. And when you go to sign, it asks you if you want to tip. And I just I notice that I tip better and more frequently at places that I, that have square. And I wonder, was that a deliberate choice on your part? Was that just something that's happened? Do merchants like that flexibility? Like what, what has the effect of tipping been relative to square? So, so tipping is an option, but a lot of merchants enable it. And yeah. when it's appropriate, we try to make it easy and yeah, it's a little bit, uh, I mean, it, it does help the tips and a lot of our merchants love it because, uh, a lot of the people who are on the front lines don't earn very much. So yeah. it seems like a good practice, but it's something that a merchant can either enable or not enable. Yeah. It, it just seems like most do. And, you know, it's interesting because I don't mind doing it, but it's like when when you're asked to do it, it's like, oh yeah, I guess I should. But if, if it's not an option, you don't even think of it. So that's, I, I think it's positive. What it does is it brings you into the moment. Mm. You know, a tip really, at least for me, makes me think about the experience that I'm having. So I don't have this sort of unconscious experience where I'm just buying something and yeah, 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 you know, you hand it to me and I don't even, you know, acknowledge you as a human, which unfortunately has been happening, you know, <laughs> some in my life. I, I, sure. I have to say probably about half the transactions I do, I'm just like another robot. Right. And so I do like the fact that it wakes me up a little bit, mm. you know, but then there are the times when I'm like, wait a second, what you did doesn't in buy buying warrant a tip. So I'm not going to do it. I'm going to feel a little weird about, you know, so it's not a hundred percent positive, but it's, it's more positive than negative. Yeah. That, that awareness is interesting. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that piece, but yeah, it's much less, (laughs) much less robotic and much more human. Um, I want to ask you too about, uh, you know, these virtual um, money apps, I guess you'd call it, you know, Venmo, PayPal, things like that. You guys have the cash app. Like, how do you see those playing into sort of the financial landscape of of where we are right now? So I, and I could just speak for cash app because cash app is really giving massive tools to tens, if not hundreds of millions of people who are previously without those tools. And when I mean tools, I like the ability to save money, Mm. the ability to get paid directly, the ability to get, you know, short-term financing, the ability to get offers or to buy stocks or to trade Bitcoin, like the things and, and, and to easily make payments without getting ripped off. Those activities are really important. And it's like having a bank in your pocket. Yeah. And it's amazing because, you know, like when the government needed to get these PPP funds out to people, you know, because of the pandemic, Cash App was there. Mm. And the funny thing was we had, oh, I think it was about 4 million people 
that were on our rolls that didn't have bank accounts. Like the government was trying to get money to these people and, and we were the only way they could reach them. Wow. And I'm not, I'm not sure if that number was 4 million cause it was, it was a while ago. So I don't want to get us, I don't want to get in trouble, but it was, let's just say millions of people yeah. were on our rolls that were not on the rolls that any government entity knew of. Wow. And if you think about it, there are by some estimates over a hundred million Americans who are under or unbanked. That's significant. Those people pay a huge penalty for that. You know, sometimes with payday loans, sometimes with, you know, sketchy uh, arrangements, sometimes with theft. I mean, because believe me, if you carry a lot of cash, sure. you're a theft target. You know, right. so I just love what we're doing. Then, you know, sort of on the high end of the stuff, Cash App is really cool as a means of just making payments disappear. Like you don't have to think about it. It's so easy and effortless. And, you know, these days when I need to pay somebody, I just say, hey, send me a cash request. Boom, yeah. comes in, boom, done. Oh, so easy. I wish I could do that with my parking tickets. Right, yeah, maybe. I mean, that, that might be the next step. Um, I wanted to ask you too, you guys, uh, Square, uh, bought Tidal, uh, Jay-Z's uh, music streaming service, uh, I think just a week or two ago, $297 million uh, deal. Uh, Jay-Z is now on the board of Square. Help me understand the connection, I guess, between streaming music and you know transactions and finance. Well, I, I don't want you to understand that connection. Like, okay. Stop drawing that connection. Okay. What, what, what you should look at is an industry where there are a lot of small merchants, uh-huh. where there are a lot of small folks who have never, I think, been well represented. Performers, in the case of Tidal. Performers and all the people that work with them. Yeah. Like It's not just the front. Like there's, there's a whole ecosystem of folks that make the music that we consume. Sure. And it's been very, very heavily weighted towards the big boys, yep. the stars and the powerful labels and all that stuff. Like, does it have much to do with payments? Nah, not in my mind, but does it have that sort of feel of this area that has ignored the little person for too long? I think so. Yeah. And so that's sort of what I'm interested in. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I've talked to a lot of musicians, especially ones coming up that, you know, aren't people that are going to sell out an arena. And yeah, just figuring out like how to make a living in this industry, especially in the time of streaming where you're getting, you know, a hundredth of a cent or whatever for each, uh, for each play. It's, uh, it can be difficult. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see sort of where you guys go with that. Um, I want to ask too, we've talked some about glass blowing and some about technology and all this, and you know, you're a pilot as well. You know, you've got a lot of varied interests, like just, have you ever felt pressure to define yourself or, you know, just, I feel like you're somebody that's very hard to put a label around and I kind of appreciate that. I, I don't feel pressure so much unless somebody's trying to, well, let me say when I have the pressure, if I got an, get in an airplane. And I sit next to somebody and they say, what do you do? I noticed if I told them, oh, I'm a computer engineer, conversation ends. If I say, oh, I'm a glassblower, we talk for two hours. And I'm the same person, but I've noticed that the interactions that I have with people vary based on what label they place on me. Hmm. And lately, I've gotten a new label, which is kind of rich guy, which I hate. I totally hate that one. Like if you want to come and talk to my wallet, I don't want anything to do with you. I mean, you want to talk to me about glass? Let's talk about glass. You want to talk about poverty or things we're doing around the city or piloting or or like, you know, music, anything, but money talk just bores me to death with one exception. And that is I'm a director of the fed 
And if you want to talk monetary policy, oh yeah, pull up a chair. <laughs> you know, we can talk monetary policy. But but you know, if it's just like ugh, the, the the whole sort of blingy rich crap is so uninteresting. But I was lucky in that I had so many weird labels growing up that I never got attached to one of them unless it served me. Yeah. So I've been, you know, lately with the new labels, I'm sort of, I've got sort of got some immune function there. Sure. Well, you know, one of the uh, the benefits, I guess, of of the money you've made is that you can invest in a lot of different things. And, you know, one thing I just want to ask you about uh, quickly is this makerspace that you've invested in in St. Louis made, um, which, like, I think is so cool. And just those these are springing up all over. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me anyways is that these didn't exist, you know, 15 years ago. And I feel like part of it is, you know, a, a move towards things like CNC and laser cutting and just you if you're going to make things, you have the option now of a lot more technology at your disposal. And I wonder sort of, you know, coming from the tech world and the maker world with glass blowing, like, how do you see the interaction between making and technology and, you know, where we're headed and, and relative to the makerspace that you're a part of? Well, so the makerspace is super important, I think, for St. Louis, because we've got a million and a half dollars worth of tools that are basically publicly available. So, you know, if you need to water jet out a two inch piece of steel, bring it on over. Like, you know, we'll forklift it in and you can zap it, you know. And as somebody who's basically built stuff my entire life, like I always long to have these resources. Like there were so many times, even when I was building the original square readers, like I had to fly back from San Francisco to St. Louis to use the metal shop at, uh, at my college. I, so I went to Wash U, uh, in St. Louis and I had to go down and, you know, use the student metal shop because like we didn't have a Bridgeport mill out in California that I could use, but I had a Bridgeport out there. So I, I like, I built a lot of the stuff myself. Yeah. And so it was really a very gratifying thing to be able to give, you know, the makers of St. Louis this space, but you know, in general, I think that having direct access to the tools gives you so much more insight. Like the thing that the thing that I always tell people is, look, you can have a great idea. Do you know how to implement it? Do you know how to build the thing? Do you know how to make it work? Or are you going to hire Mark Zuckerberg, right? Because Facebook wasn't Zuck's idea. Right. He was just the guy that knew how to build it, right? And oh, once the guy who actually knows how to build it realizes that you and your idea are worthless, mm. he just kicks you out and right. you can go off and do your other stuff. But like the point is the ability to create is something that I think is more enhanced than ever. And so why not come in and learn to do it? And by the way, if you are a maker, if you're somebody who likes to build stuff, we have an entire region of St. Louis that's now dedicated to you. So, so we've got third degree, we've got made space, we've got craft lines, we've got all these people who are now coming together in what I hope is going to be a genius cluster of makers. Yeah. So if it's getting too expensive in New York, hey, I got a deal for you. <laughs> well, you know, I want to wrap up just with something that you ended your book on. And that was this idea of asking some of these these idols of yours, you know, AP Giannini, who, who founded Bank of America, or Sam Walton, Andrew Carnegie, about not how they gained their success, but you wanted to know what it felt like and why they kept going. So I'm curious for you, having been through all this now, what does it feel like? I, I wish I could tell you that it was fun. It is fun in a way that sort of terror is fun. <laughs> okay. But I don't want to sugarcoat it here. When 
I have to take off my tourist hat and put on my explorer hat. I am nervous that I'm going to be killed. Mm. I am nervous that I'm going to be eaten alive by some predator that I've never seen before or poisoned by something that I step on. I mean, it is just terrifying. I, I know that's not a kind of a happy way to end this, but what I, what I wanted to tell the readers is that's how it is. Look, yeah. that's, I believe how it is. And I, I met some of these people and I've read their biographies and I've read their autobiographies and I, I, I've studied, and it seems to be more common than not that these great heroic titans of industry at one point were terrified. Comprod writes about, you know, crying himself to sleep at night. He was so worried about Ikea and stuff like that. And so, you know, these are not the stories of bold men. You know, these are the stories of people who are in, in many cases really anxious and, and scared, but that's part of not being able to cut. If you're doing something original, you're most likely going to feel that. And which is why when I sort of wrapped the book up, I said, look, honestly, this is how I feel. And the fact that I know that I'm going to feel that way the next time I try something new is not much comfort. Mm. You know, it's, there's a point <laughs> right. at which yeah, it just sucks. But here, here's the thing. It is doable. It's not something you should just automatically quit. You know, like my daughter, when I tried to take her on a trip the other day and she's three years old, I was going to take her into a cave. She was like, I'm not going in, like screaming her head off, you know, cause she's looking at this cave going, it's dark. And, and I was like, look, there are lights in the cave. They just haven't turned them on yet. But I was trying to talk a three-year-old and going to like, but that's the sort of emotional terror that I see in 35 year old master's degree holders who have every reason to believe that they could do what they've set out to do. They just have to step off the path a little bit. And we're so used to staying on the path the whole time that it, it becomes terrifying. So I, I want to say, look, yes, it's terrifying. It's still terrifying, but it's also doable. All right, there we go. Jim McKelvey, just keep going. That's the lesson I heard in there. And, you know, the other great lesson, I think, is just so many business people, Jim included, are regular, normal people that just had a problem to solve. They're not these, you know, MBA guys that grew up in it. Certainly, there's there's a lot of that. <laughs> there are guys that run companies that come through that. But uh, as Jim argues in his book, they're business people. They're not entrepreneurs. And uh, any of us can go make something. So go make your thing. Whatever's bugging you, go solve that. Jim's book is The Innovation Stack. Make sure you check that out. It is on bookstore shelves now. And it's a great read. It's a book that I was page turning very quickly through and didn't want to put down. So I hope you'll check it out. I have new episodes of Quarantine Creatives every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you will be the first to have it in your feed. And I also have a newsletter. If you miss any episodes of the show, you can check out the newsletter by going to heathrasella.com and enter your email address. Newsletter comes out every Sunday and it goes right to your inbox. I'm at Heathrasella on Twitter and Instagram. Drop me a note. Leave me a message. Love to know what you guys are thinking about. I will talk to you guys next week. Stay safe. Stay safe.